Good evening, everyone. I uh, hope you guys are doing well. Um, it's good to be meeting together, uh, even if it's in this way. It's great to have you guys on Zoom. Uh, now, just to let you know, if you're new, welcome first. Uh, we're glad that you've decided to join us today. Um, we'd love to meet you sometime, perhaps next week. If we're back to physical services, it'll be great uh, to see you join us here. Now, if you're joining us, uh, those who've been with us know that we've been doing a series in the book of Amos called or titled Beautiful Ashes. And uh, in this series, we've done so far three talks. First one, Unrelenting God. Second is Listen. And last week in our third talk, we looked at uh, the fact that Amos tells us that to seek God is to seek the good of others. Uh, those who, that those who have a faith that justifies will do justice. That's what we saw last week. And today we are in our fourth talk, which is titled, The Jury is Out. I'm sure you've seen the title already. Now, if you've heard that phrase before, this is a phrase to mean that the jury is not yet decided on the decision that is to be made. Now, you'll see how it fits in with our passage for today. But how about I pray for us as we come to God's word. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us today. Uh, to celebrate and glory in the beauty of what Jesus has done to rescue us and to bring us into your family. Uh, but Lord, we do pray that as those that you have redeemed, uh, that Lord, you would today show us uh, the idols that we have in our lives, that we would identify them, and that with the gospel, we would dismantle them and rejoice and rest in Jesus Christ. Would you help us to do that? so that we are able to love you and love others appropriately. And this we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we have spoken about God holding his people, his family, the Israelites, accountable, for one, not seeking him and not seeking the good of others. How have you felt about that? Honestly, how have you felt about that? Reflect on this with honesty. See, my suspicion is that there are three kinds of reactions here. Three kinds of reactions. Reactions that you've either felt all throughout the sermon or reactions that you, or you've probably only felt one of them. Here's the first reaction that I think people have probably felt. The first one is there are probably a group of people who've thought, oh man, those Israelites are bad. We spend quite a lot of time talking about their sin. Tonight we'll talk about you and me a lot more. But perhaps you're sitting there and thinking, those guys are bad. I don't think that I am as bad as they are. Perhaps, perhaps that's the first reaction uh, that you have felt. But I think there's another group of people. And this group of people would probably say, actually, I'm, I'm a little bit tired of talking about judgment, but more particularly justice. It just feels like at the moment, everyone is having a conversation about justice. And I'm a little bit tired with that. I think there's a third group of people, and this group of people, this is how they felt. They felt conflicted as they've heard the messages all throughout Amos. They felt conflicted because they've sat there wondering to themselves, hey, do I actually love my neighbor? Do I seek the good of my neighbor? Could I do more to seek the good of my neighbor? Now, that person is probably thinking, I know God loves me. I know I love him. But I wonder if I could do more to show love to my neighbor. 
Now, I think out of all these reactions, that is the best place to be as a Christian. As a Christian, you should find your, yourself at a place where you, you feel a little bit of conflict. I mean, you know that God loves you. But when you see this great love you have show, you've been shown, it should leave you a little bit conflicted as you think about your love for others. Could I do more to show love towards them? Again, if you find yourself there, or you've found yourself there in this series, that is a good place to be. That's beautiful, because that's what the gospel does. The gospel renews us. It renews our desires and causes us to ask, how can I show others love? Because I've been shown great love by God. But often I must say, when you and I are challenged by God's word, when we are challenged by God's word, especially when it means that there is a particular idol in our lives that we might have to let go of, I think when we are challenged at those moments, we often don't like that. If you're honest, we don't. We don't like to be challenged because we don't want to let go of the idols that we are worshiping. Now, an idol, Tim Keller describes as anything that you and I look for, for a sense of worth or value. And I think you and I often do that. And when we hear God's word pressing upon something in our lives, we often shrink back because we don't want to let go of this idol. So this is the case here with Amaziah, the high priest, who brings an accusation against Amos because he has not liked the prophecies that Amos has brought uh, to the people of God. See, Amaziah is not happy with it. He's not happy because there's something, there's an idol that Amos is tackling in his own life and in the life of Israel. But you see, despite the opposition that Amos faces from Amaziah, Amos does not wilt to speak the truth of God. He continues, rather. He continues to speak the truth of God and stand for truth. So as we turn to our passage today, which I will read for us in Amos 7, I want you to see this conflict between Amos and Amaziah. Notice this conflict here. Let me read the passage, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Amos 7, if you've got the passage, let me read it for us from verse 10. Then Amaziah, the high priest, or the priest rather, of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all of his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from this land. And Amaziah has said to and Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, flee, go away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a son of a prophet, but a, but a headsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go and prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You, you say, do not prophesy against the house of Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore says the Lord, therefore thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a, prosti a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up 
with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from this land. Now in this passage, as I just said a little bit earlier, we are presented with a conflict between Amos and Amaziah. And if I may remind you that we said the way that the prophets tell us of their prophecies, or they tell us of the story between God and his people, God has come to accuse his people. They often tell us this story in a courtroom scene kind of way, where Amos or the prophet, whoever the prophet is, is the prosecutor that is standing on behalf of God, who is the offended party. And the people of God are the accused because they've broken their covenant. They have not loved God as they meant to, and they have not loved the other people around them. But in this instance, I want you to notice that Amaziah, who is a leader, who is a high priest, speaks on behalf of the, of the leaders and speaks on behalf of the people. He actually puts Amos in the dark. And so Amos, in this case, is the one who is the accused. Maybe some of your Bibles, if you notice, would have that as the title, Amos accused. This is what happens here. Amaziah accuses Amos. And so as you and I read this passage, we are meant to think, could Amaziah be right about what he says about Amos? The jury is out on Amos. Could he be right about what he says about Amos? But we are also meant to think, or is this an attempt from Amaziah to silence God's message, the message of judgment and justice? Remember, God brings his message of judgment to his people because they've not loved him or loved others. So the jury is out, in a sense, on Amaziah as well. Could he be trying to silence God's message? But you today, as the jury, you're a little bit biased, I would say. You're biased because you've joined us for the last three weeks. And in the last three weeks, we have seen the, the, messages, that Amos has, the, the, the messages that Amos has brought to the people of God. And so I'm certain that as we read through this story, you've already taken the side of Amos. And chances are that you think of yourself as being Amos in this story, right? But anyway, as we come to the passage, we will see what happens. We'll see what God's word is going to say to us, the jury. So here's the first thing. The first person who stands up to give his argument. Remember, it's a court scene. First person who stands up to give his argument from verse 10 to verse 13 is Amaziah. Let's read the passage again and notice what he says. Verse 10. And then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Let's stop there for now. Now, reading that passage at first sight, it seems, it seems like it's right for Amaziah to do this, to send a letter to the king. It seems like the reasonable thing to do, to, do, to send a letter to the king, because the king is, after all, the leader of the nation. And if you remember anything I've said in the last few weeks, the king had influence or was the person who was the most responsible in creating a culture of goodness or a culture of evil and injustice in the land. And so if the king was not good, most of the time, you would find that there's a culture of injustice that is created in the land. Now notice here, he writes to the king. So it makes sense. It seems reasonable that he writes to the king so that if the king hears the message, if he hasn't heard it, if the king hears the message, 
and decides to lead the nation to repent. It makes sense. But that's not why he writes to the king. This is not the reason why Amaziah writes to the king. See, he writes to the king because he's looking for someone who will support his worldview. See, the king is his star witness. Now remember, Amaziah is among the people who are accused here. So the king is not just his star witness, but the king is his alibi. See, he writes to the king because he knows the king will agree with what he says. He knows that the king will support his idolatry, his corrupted worship, and the fact that he's benefited materially from what is happening in Israel, in Israel at the moment. The king will support him because the king himself is benefiting in the same way that Amaziah is. So he's writing to the king who will become his star witness. And he's, he wants at this moment to put Amos in trouble with the king. Notice what he says in the next following lines, to see that he actually wants to put Amos in trouble. He actually does not say, if, you, if we continue reading verse 10, that these are the words from God, that God has spoken to Israel, because that's what Amos has done. Every time Amos has stood up and given a word, he has said, this is what the Lord says. But notice what he says. He says, this is what Amos says. He removes God from the equation. And notice the content of what he says Amos has said. Verse 10, let's continue reading. It says, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all of his words. You notice that? The first thing that he does is to misrepresent Amos. Is to make it seem like the message that Amos has brought, which is God's message against his family, he makes it seem like a personal attack. He, make it he makes it seem like Amos has a personal vendetta against the king. King Amos wants your head. He wants you killed, as we see in verse 11. So the message that was meant to be a message to God's people, God's family whom he has redeemed from Egypt, people whom he has made his kings and his priests, Amaziah immediately turns this into a personal vendetta against the king. But notice what he says as well. He says, Jeroboam shall die by the sword in verse 11. Now so far, we've not seen Amos say anything about that. Amos has not said it straightforward, that the king will die. In verse 9 of this very passage, he says the house of Jeroboam will come to an end. And that could mean his kingship comes to an end or the kingdom comes to an end. So he's not said it plainly. He's implied it. But he's not said the king will die. And so we see immediately how he misrepresents what Amos is saying. But notice as well what he does. He makes it seem as though he cares about the people. The land is not able to bear all of his words. King, I care about these people. Mind you, the very same people. Because he's a leader, he's among the elite, those who would have, who would have had positions and material. The very same people whom he has oppressed. He says, I care about them. So he misrepresents Amos and puts forward a better image of himself than what exists. Now let me ask this, isn't this what we do as well? Isn't this what we do? When someone challenges us on a particular sin in our lives, we do this very exact same thing that he has done. One, we find someone who will agree with our worldview. 
So someone challenges you on a particular sin in your life and immediately you look for someone who will rubber stamp or validate your idolatry. And so if, instead of being challenged by God's word, you end up as being the, the victim in this case. Now you're wrong. This person agrees with me. This is why he has come, come to the king. And often what you and I also do is we either misquote what the other person has said, we misrepresent them, or we put forward a better picture of ourselves than what exists. It happens in the church. It happens within relationships between people. You misquote someone because you know that the person that you're talking to probably has power to do something about this very person. Now, I've used this quote before, but it's an appropriate quote. And listen to it. I've just changed a little bit of it. Listen to this quote. Anyone who has been challenged about their idols knows the tendency in all of us toward exaggerating our depth of character while treating leniently our flaws than those of others. We consciously or subconsciously put forward a better image of ourselves than what exists. That's what we do. We misquote someone else and we put, a better, put forward a better image of ourselves than what truly exists. Now notice as, he, as we continue to read the, through the passage. Verse 10, he has sent a letter to the king. But he does not actually wait for a response from the king. You would think that he would wait for a response from the king. But because his idols are threatened, the idols that are threatened in this case is the power that he has as a high priest in the nation, but it's also the material benefits he has had. Because these things are threatened, he immediately moves forward to make the decision to get rid of Amos. See, he acts irrationally by telling Amos, leave Bethel and leave the Northern Kingdom. Go and prophesy in your land. He acts irrationally because the, the idols in his life are being threatened. Now, it's shocking, or I should say, isn't it not shocking, rather, to see how irrational people act when the idols in their life are being threatened. So again, Dewey, isn't this what you and I do? When someone comes to challenge us on an idol in our lives, what we immediately want to do is to press the eject button so that they get out of the relationship that we have. Or we find a way to terminate the relationship. If it continues, it never really continues in the same way. And often we will say words such as, I don't need such negativity in my life. And so you cut off that person. It's toxicity because they've challenged you on a particular idol in your life. Or we say, I don't think you and I can, can exist or can be together in the same fellowship, in the same Bible study, in the same church, or even same dinner. We have a different view of what the gospel is. We've got a different view of what life should be about. Isn't this what we do? We figure out a way to terminate the relationship because the person has challenged the idols in our lives. We've all been there, haven't we? But if terminating the relationship does not work, then you could always try tarnishing the person's character. You could always try tarnishing their image. You can impute motives. You can say, this is the reason why they're doing what they're doing. Or you name call, 
which is what we see from verse 12. In verse 12, this is what Amaziah says to Amos. O seer, go, flee, to, flee away to the land of Judah. Eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's century and it is the temple of the kingdom. Now you notice what he does? He immediately says the reason why Amos has come to the north to bring God's word there is because Amos is doing it for money. He says Amos is doing it for money. But there's more to this. Actually, some commentators point out that the word that he uses there, seer, instead of prophet, is actually saying something to us. See, let me make a distinction between the two. A seer, rowe, or a prophet, navi, or two different words that were used of people at this time. But usually someone who was a seer was commonly at this time a professional prophet. This is someone who would have visions of what would happen and so maybe before a battle or before someone goes on a long distance trip, you can read one Psalm 9, someone will come to this person and ask them, will this thing work for my good? And then very often the, the, the seer would tell them what would happen. And then the seer would get paid for that. So there were people who were professional prophets. Actually, if you read this passage in the NLT, you will notice that Amos a little bit later says, I wasn't actually a professional prophet. So this is what he accuses Amos of. You are here doing this for money. He imputes motives and say, you have an impure motive to why you are challenging us. Actually, Amos, go eat bread in the South because here yeah, you are messing with my bread. You are messing with my idol. So go back home. He, he gets Amos to go back home. He imputes the motive on why Amos has brought this message to God's people. Now again, I could say redeemed family, but we have a running illustration here. Jury, isn't this something that we do as well? Not just as individuals, but as a church. Tim Keller says, uh, idols are not something that are just individual and uh, personal, but they're corporate and cultural as well. So we've got to ask, isn't this what we do as individuals and as a church? We name call when someone presses upon an idol in our lives, or we make it seem as though that person has impure motives. Someone comes to you and challenges you on how your career or your, your, your work is an idol. How you're spending a lot more time doing that. You've moved yourself away from community. And actually, you're willing to step on people's toes to get to the very top. And when someone challenges you about that, you know what we respond by? We usually say, you're just not ambitious enough. We impute motives to why the person is saying that. Why the person could really care about us and the idol in our lives. When someone comes to us and says, hey man, I think relationships are a big idol in your life. Or your singleness, the fact that you want your own time, you want to use your time for yourself, is an idol in your life at the moment. You know what we usually say? You just don't want me to be happy. If someone comes to you and says your family or your, your marriage is an idol to you, these are good gifts from God, but you've isolated yourself from community and you've not used your family and your marriage for the sake of the kingdom. You know what we say? You don't want me to enjoy God's blessings. And when someone challenges you or challenges us on how we come to church, simply to sit, not to build relationships with other people, not to serve, not to be part of the mission of God's church, which is the great commission to take the message of the gospel out and the great commandment to love those around us. 
when we're challenged about that and that we have a consumeristic way of thinking about our worship do you know what we say you don't want me to have privacy or lastly when someone challenges us on our view of justice that the way we view justice isn't actually biblical you know what we say we, we say one of two things one you're being political at the moment you're being a liberal or worse you're being a communist or a marxist or the other side of the argument we say to someone you're being fundamentalistic fundamentalistic at the moment you're being very individualistic you're being capitalist or worse racist now i hope you don't think i've equated capitalism with racism and the other side as well liberal thought with communism but very often this is what you find in the church and it's not just happening internationally it's happening locally it's happening in the church in south africa where when our view of justice differs our view of how we should act to the people in our country what the church should do we name call and we impute motives to why someone would challenge us on the particular idol in our lives and the reason we do this is because we don't like to be challenged we don't like to be challenged about our idols, the things that we cherish, the things that we feel give us a sense of value or worth, things that actually hinder us from loving God and loving neighbor. And so if we are honest, we are the amazia in this passage. We would do anything to defend the idols in our lives if it means someone will come and take it away. We would do anything to defend them. This is what gives me a sense of value and worth. Why are you trying to take it away? Tim Keller, I said this last week, but I think let me explain it a little bit in more detail this week, explains idolatry in four categories. He says, one, idolatry it could be seen in our comfort. It could be seen in our desire for approval, desire for control, and desire for power. Let me explain the first one. Desire for comfort is a desire for privacy or lack of stress and freedom. Approval. A desire for affirmation, love, and relationship. Third, control, a desire for certainty, a standard in life, and to master all the events in our lives. Things must go the way that I want. A third, power, a desire for success, winning, or to have influence. People must, must see that I'm a great mover. Now, as you read through this story, you could fit one or all of these into a messiah, but Jewry, we could fit these into mind your life as well. We don't wanna let go of certain things because they give us comfort. They give us a sense of approval, love from other people. They give us a sense of control in life. They give us a sense of power. And the worst thing we don't realize is that these things that we hold on to, these idols we hold on to, rob us of the beauty of the gospel. Or I should say, how the gospel beautifies us. See, the gospel, the very same gospel that saves, is the gospel that helps us to get rid of our idols. But because we do not want to get rid of those idols, very often what happens is, you and I are the people that stand in the way of God turning ashes into beauty in our lives. So today, we need to think about how we can get rid of the amnesia in our lives, how we can get rid of the amnesia in us, because this same gospel that saves is the gospel that helps us to dismantle, to identify and dismantle the idols in our lives. See, the gospel helps us to see that the idols that we hold on to, one, we recognize how poor they are and weak they are. 
They cannot keep their promises. Two, we recognize how dangerous and enslaving they are because they cause us to be self-consumed and to not love others. Three, they, they grieve the heart of Jesus. But you see, the gospel also helps us to rest in Jesus, to rejoice in Jesus, the only one who can actually keep his promises. Jesus is the God who keeps his promises. And so here's the thing. You and I tonight can actually choose to allow the gospel to work in our hearts and in our lives. And in our church, we have so many examples of people who have actually done this. People who have allowed the gospel to work in their lives so that they could love and show goodness to others. There are few people who have taken people in. I'm going to use one example of this person because I've spoken to her. She took someone in when they were stranded, when they needed a place. And this shows you that this person did not use their personal space as an idol. But they decided, let me use this to love someone else. But this very same person has now decided to use their time to collect clothes that they can take to an orphanage in Tembisa. Their time is not an idol. They will use it to figure out how to love others. As a church, because we are a church that rejoices in the gospel, a church that rejoices in Jesus, we have decided to do an outreach, to show love to the people that often stand outside our community here in Midrand. More on this a little bit later when David and I have a discussion. So this gospel is able to change our hearts to love others. But let me close with this. Amos stands up and gives a counter argument and makes it clear that his motives are pure. He makes it clear that I'm not doing this for money. I was actually a farmer. God called me to come and bring this message here. He says, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a professional prophet. But he also says, I'm not a son of a prophet, which means he was not part of the school of prophets. Actually, God called me when I was farming to bring his word here. He makes his motives clear, clear that this is what he has come to do. He has come to stand for truth, even if it means he'll be opposed. Something that you and I should think about, that we should stand for goodness, we should stand for justice, even when we are opposed. Thereafter, he then tells Amazia what is coming for him. He says, God will bring judgment into your house. Judgment is coming to your house, and judgment is coming to Israel. See, as you read through chapter 7 to chapter 9, you notice something. In chapter 7, there are two visions that we see where Amos prays that God would relent, and God does that. But after the third vision, God does not relent. Because of this story here, because Amaziah and the people of Israel did not turn back to God. And so God brings judgment to his people. But as you've heard me in the last few weeks, you and I don't have to worry about judgment because we know that there's one who's come to take judgment on our behalf. Jesus has taken all of the judgment that we deserved. See, Jesus became ashes for us so that we could be made beautiful. Jesus was exiled in one sense, so that we will be adopted and brought into God's family. But you've also heard me say, and I'm not making the gospel a footnote here, what Jesus has done on the cross for us. You've heard me say, because God has adopted us, when he realizes that you and I are holding on to idols, he disciplines us out of love, so that you and I could be made more and more more like this Jesus, who has saved us. And so the jury is out on you and me today. Will we act like a Messiah? 
or will we act like Amos? Or yet, better, the greater Amos, Jesus, who gave his life to save us. Jesus, who gave us his spirit to empower us to live in the way that he has called us to. Which will you choose? The jury is out on you. Let me pray. Father, would you help us to live in a way that shows that we are seeking good, seeking God, and seeking the goodness of others? Would you help us to identify and dismantle the idols in our lives through the power of the gospel and the power of your spirit? Amen.